0: Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Osterholm Update podcast. Once again, as we have seen several times over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, the United States appears to be entering a more optimistic phase of the pandemic experience. The nationwide surge of Omicron cases has passed its peak. Several states are seeing transmission levels similar to those before Omicron arrived, and COVID-19 hospitalizations are declining. This renewed optimism has prompted some governors to announce the end of indoor mask mandates and masking requirements in schools, and is fueling a larger conversation about learning how to live with this virus going forward. But with the country still reporting more than 2,500 deaths a day from COVID, is now the right time to be having this conversation? On this February 10th episode of the podcast, we're going to dive into that question as we assess the trajectory of the pandemic here in the United States and around the world. We'll also get the latest on the BA.2 sub-variant of Omicron, answer a COVID query about COVID-19 vaccines for children under five, and share the latest beautiful play submission from one of our listeners. But before we get started, as always, we'll begin with Dr. Ostrom's opening comments and dedication.
1: Thank you, Chris, and welcome to all of you to another episode of the podcast update. It's notable today we're recording our 96th episode We've had 90 regular episodes with this one, six special episodes, so it, uh, we're getting to that point of 100 episodes. I would have hoped and wanted to believe that we'd never make it to 100 episodes. Unfortunately, I know we're going to uh, as we continue to unravel what's happening with uh, COVID throughout our communities and, for that matter, around the world. Uh, today, I will try to give you a sense of what I think is a, really a transition time where we are going to start seeing light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not the headlight of a train coming down on us. It's truly sunlight at the other end of that tunnel, at least for now. One of the things that uh, is gonna be important here is, is this concept of nuancing. You know, I've tried to talk about that throughout the course of this pandemic, and usually it only got me in more trouble than it helped because people don't want nuances. They want black and white answers and they will stick by them as a way for them to feel most comfortable responding to this pandemic. Well, it's not that way in real life. We have to nuance it. And today I'll be talking about how do we make this transition from this Omicron viral blizzard to what I think will be the days ahead. And what does that mean for public health? What does that mean for our everyday lives? Um, It's in this regard that uh, today, the dedication I have is really one that is quite general. And yet for each of us, I think we can feel it very specifically. Imagine all the school boards, all the school superintendents, all the college administrators, all the daycare providers, community faith leaders, large and small business owners and supervisory staff, travel planners, reunion planners. Think of all the hospital administrators around the world. How about emergency response planners clearly critical infrastructure planners, even being a mom or a dad or a grandpa and grandma. This is dedicated to you as you try to figure out what are my next days with COVID to look like? What can I count on? What will I know that I can do that will not suddenly find me a day or two later wondering why did I do that? So we will try to do our best today to help provide some sense of where we're going. And what I believe is truly two different pandemics going on right now, one of COVID and one of a lack of trust in public health. And we're going to have to address both of those pandemics because they're real. That's where this planning really is about, the rubber meeting the road. Now, I do have to start out in my very typical good news fashion. This is a wonderful part of the podcast. For some of you who are bored by it, so be it. For those who enjoy it, take uh, note. Uh, today, we will have 10 hours and 10 minutes and 14 seconds of sunlight in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. That's 16 minutes and 27 seconds of additional sunlight than we had just last week at this time. And more importantly, it's one hour and 24 minutes and three seconds of additional sunlight than we had in the winter solstice on December 21st. Yes, it's getting lighter. Those in the Southern Hemisphere, you still got a lot of light left but we have to hold on to these ever, ever increasing minutes of sunlight today. Finally, I just have to add one personal note, and this is somewhat uh, difficult for me to talk about because uh, I hate talking about personal things. I wanna thank all of you, all of you, and I can't tell you how many that is, who have written in to us concerned about my health and my voice. And you have given me tremendous, tremendous advice on what I can do to deal with this hoarse voice. Well, let me reassure you, I am fine other than the fact that I am hoarse. And I am hoarse because I just talk too much. And there'll be a number of you on this podcast who will very violently agree with that, that I talk too much. Um, But for those that uh, occasionally wanna hear what I have to say, uh, you know, I'm okay. Otherwise I am literally looking forward to a day when uh, I can shut up, go walk in some wilderness for days on end, not talk to anybody but the trees or the birds, and uh, regain my voice back. In the meantime, you're going to be stuck with me. I'm sorry, you're stuck with me. I hope the message is a lot better than what the messenger sounds like. So anyway, in that regard, I do want to sincerely thank the number of you who've written in concerned about my health and uh, what my voice is like. And, um, Thank you. They were very, very kind. I, I cannot tell you how much many of those uh, very thoughtful uh, emails and letters meant to me. So thank you.
0: Mike, many of our international reports over the last few weeks have focused on the Omicron wave in Europe. And that made sense because we've often looked to Europe to, to understand what was going to happen here in the United States. But it's Asia now that appears to be bearing the brunt of Omicron. Can you give the listeners a sense of what's going on in Asia and other parts of the world?
1: Well, Chris, one of the things that's been a real challenge these past few months is that in addition to all the information and data consistently coming out on Omicron, we've also had to try and keep up with the widespread surges playing out almost simultaneously across the globe. But before we go on and address this international aspect, I want to take this moment and pause to reflect on a number that I think, while it hardly represents the actual true number of cases that have occurred worldwide, it is a subtle reminder of what we have been through just in the recent weeks. Think about this. At this point in the pandemic, there have now been over 400 million cases reported of COVID around the world. It took one year to get to 100 million. It took seven months to get to 200 million. And it only took six months to get to 400 million. But more specifically, it only took a month, one month, to go from 300 million to 400 million. In the last month, we've seen 100 million new cases worldwide. Now, I've already talked uh, at length about the challenges of trying to count cases and the undercounting and where they're missed and how they're missed. But this should just be a reminder to us of the impact that COVID has had. And I just have to say at the outset today, I'm going to get you know, into numbers and going to talk about uh, issues related to policy and so forth. But please never forget, these are cases of infection. These are people who were hospitalized. And unfortunately, far too often, these are people who died, who are our family, who are our friends, our colleagues, people we admired, people we only heard of, but we wished we knew. And we never, never can forget the toll that this pandemic has taken on the lives of so many very, very special people. So let me move on with this discussion about the international reports. If you think about it, even with the emergence of previous variants, many countries or regions outside of where it was first identified experienced a pretty substantial delay before they ever felt the impact firsthand. Take, for example, with Alpha. We saw a lot of the initial activity play out on the UK and other parts of Europe. By the time Alpha took over in the US, it had been months since the emergence in Europe, so we knew quite a bit about it. Of course, even when it did take over in the US, for whatever reasons, and I am yet to understand why, the impact was limited to just a handful of states, particularly states like Michigan and Minnesota. A similar situation played out with Delta. Remember, Delta emerged last spring when India was an absolute house on fire. Around the same time, meaning last February, March, and April, countries near India, like Nepal and Pakistan, were also experiencing major surges linked to the variant. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., we really didn't see our first Delta wave until early July. Other places, like Eastern Europe, went into August before they were hit by Delta. And many parts of Latin America didn't see a surge from Delta at all, never did. So although there were no shortages of hotspots when these previous variants emerged, there were these irregularities surrounding when and where surges occurred. However, with Omicron, it seems like essentially every country and region has faced a surge shortly after the variant arrived there. This is exactly the concept of a viral blizzard that I tried to put forward in November. As a result of all the global travel that occurs each and every day, combined with Omicron's remarkable ability to transmit, it was really only a matter of days or weeks that separated the timing of these surges in different countries. So again, this variant's consistency in causing surges has led to that storm track pattern I've talked about in the past. As a result, there's been no shortage of international activity discussed these past couple of months. That being said, as you mentioned in your question, Chris, we have used Europe as one of the main focal points for our international updates. A big reason for this is because several countries that faced Omicron surges earlier than many other parts of the world offering a preview of what other places might expect with the variant surge. In addition, several of these same countries, including Denmark and the UK, do an excellent job with sequencing the virus. So in general, Europe has really provided an in-depth look at what these Omicron surges entail. And although the variant is still having an impact there, a growing number of European countries, hit early on, have reached peaks and are now seeing declines. In fact, if you look at the numbers for the past week reported of the WHO, Global cases as a whole appear to be improving. Again, I will add all the caveats about underreporting. Yes, we know that. Of course, with more than 19.5 million reported cases last week, there's undoubtedly a lot of virus still circulating. However, that total is down from nearly 23.3 million reported the previous week, representing an all-time high. This is actually the first time we've seen a decline in weekly cases since mid-October were 16 weeks ago when the total then was below 3 million. So although I'm still hesitant to put a ton of stock into case numbers, this recent decline is at least an early indication that most of the world is past the Omicron case peak. At the same time, it's also important to recognize that as a lagging indicator, the global death toll has only continued to grow with more than 68,000 reported this past week. This marks the fifth consecutive week of rising deaths, which are now 60% higher than they were the final week of December, when the death toll then was only 43,000. I hate saying only, but in comparison to 68,000, it gives perspective. In fact, this latest total is close to the levels reached during the Delta surge this past August that hit Eastern Europe and the US. So like I said last week, although any progress is good progress, we shouldn't lose sight of the impact that this virus is still having more than two years after its emergence. This brings me to Asia and even countries in the Middle East. Unlike South Africa, the UK, and other countries that had early starts to their Omicron waves, many parts of Asia and the Middle East didn't see activity really take off until late December. Shell it was only a month later, but nonetheless, in Omicron time, that was a long time. According to the Reuters COVID dashboard, as of this past Tuesday, a total of 11 countries in Asia and the Middle East are reporting peak levels of infection. In fact, 23 countries in the region, including Japan, South Korea, Azerbaijan, Jordan, Turkey, Georgia, Iran, Indonesia, and Malaysia, have documented an increase in average daily cases over the past two weeks. In Iran, A country that has already experienced five previous waves and has fully vaccinated two out of three of every resident, i.e., 66%, which puts them ahead of our country, Omicron has caused daily cases to grow from less than 1,500 in mid January to more than 35,000 as of Monday. For context, their all time high case total of 40,000 was in August, caused by Delta, and was reached after more than two months of growth. Despite starting from a lower baseline, cases from Omicron have already approached that all-time high in just three weeks in Iran. Now, if there's any good news for the country, average daily deaths from COVID were at their lowest point since the start of the pandemic in mid-January. So, this lower baseline, along with reduced severity from Omicron and protection against severe disease offered by their vaccine efforts and or previous infections should help lessen the surge impact. However, daily deaths there have already climbed from less than 20 in mid-January to more than 100 this past Monday. So we'll have to see how Iran, which has relied heavily on the Sinopharm vaccine out of China and has administered additional doses to less than one-quarter of its population, fares in the weeks ahead. Israel is another country in the region that's been hit hard by Omicron. Unlike Iran, which has yet to hit a peak in cases, Israel has been reporting declines throughout the past two weeks. However, prior to these declines, cases there spiked from less than 600 a day in mid-December to a record high 73,000 just over a month later. Remember, this is a country that has never reported an average of even 10,000 cases a day prior to Omicron. Let me repeat that. Israel has just recorded a record high 73,000 cases, and their previous high was 10,000 cases a day prior to Omicron. As a result, Israel also recently documented their highest ever number of seriously ill patients and reported that an all-time high average of 73 deaths a day last Friday. Their previous high was 60 deaths a day, set during their surge last January. So how is this possible? I've seen people recently use Israel's evidence that vaccines somehow aren't working, citing headlines of their efforts to get fourth doses into arms, while also mentioning the country hit an all-time high for deaths. At face value, it can certainly raise a lot of questions, but if you look at the data, you'll see the vaccines were actually playing a very critical role in reducing the impact of this surge in Israel. First, This is a country where two out of every three residents are fully vaccinated, or around 67%. Again, this is somewhat better than the U.S. rate of 64%, but there are still more than 50 countries with rates that rank higher than Israel and, of course, our own. That being said, the country has administered additional doses to more than half of its population, 57%, which places them among the top 10 globally. So how well is the vaccine working? Well, data from the country's health ministry showed that although just 12% of the country's residents 60 years of age and older are either unvaccinated or have only received one dose, they accounted for 43% of the COVID deaths in their age group last month. So just 12% of the country's residents who are not vaccinated or under vaccinated accounted for 43% of the deaths last month. On January 31st, the death rate in unvaccinated individuals aged 60 and older stood at 16.3 per 100,000. For fully vaccinated individuals in this age group, the death rate was only 0.9 per 100,000, more than 18-fold lower. Now, unfortunately, the death rates for fully vaccinated individuals who also received an additional dose wasn't available for the same time period. However, Considering data from the U.S., which shows a seven-fold lower death rate in those 65 years of age who have received an additional dose compared to those who haven't, and the data from Israel published in December, which found that an additional dose reduced the risk of death from Delta by 90% compared to those relying on two doses, I think it's fair to assume the death rate for individuals with three or even four doses of vaccine were noticeably lower than even 0.9 per 100,000. Grant you this does not take into account those who are compromised and what those rates may look like. We'll hopefully be able to provide you more of that information in the days ahead. But we can all agree vaccines clearly make a difference. But as we've seen in countries like Israel and the US, the virus can take advantage of any gaps in protection. And that's what Omicron has done. So it's no surprise that a variant as infectious as this is causing record high cases in places like Hong Kong, Japan, and South Korea. These case surges are really the hallmark of Omicron, and ultimately it means that countries are largely reliant upon the progress they made in the way of vaccinations, which can really define whether the case surge leads to a dramatic rise in hospitalizations and deaths, or it remains at a fraction of the levels seen with previous surges. Finally, I just want to end with a quick update on China. Of course, the Winter Olympics have recently kicked off there in Beijing. And although there are reports of cases being picked up in the Olympic bubble, there haven't been many COVID updates in other parts of the country. Again, heading to the Olympics, China was dealing with several clusters or outbreaks in multiple cities, including Beijing, and a number were caused by Omicron. On Monday, the country reported a total of 105 new cases. Although 40 were imported, the remaining 65 were locally transmitted in two cities. One of those cities which is where most of the cases were identified and is home to 3.6 million residents, has been placed under total lockdown. However, with at least 10 areas of the country having recently reported locally transmitted cases of Omicron, it's hard to believe that Monday's report covers the entire extent of China's current situation. I truly believe we are at this point experiencing major underreporting of cases in China, and it will be interesting to see what we find over the next few weeks ahead.
0: Here in the U.S., we're now seeing a seven-day average of less than 250,000 new daily cases, down from more than 750,000 daily cases just a few weeks ago. And the descent from that peak has been pretty rapid. So, Mike, is it safe to say that the viral blizzard is on its way out?
1: Well, Chris, I think it's safe to say that at least up to this point, the improvement we're seeing with cases and hospitalizations have been playing out about as well as we might have hoped for realistically. We've lived through much of this viral blizzard. As you mentioned, cases have dropped to less than a third of the levels they were at just a few weeks ago, and while they're still right around the previous record high hit last January, basically every state in the country is now reporting notable declines in cases, so I don't expect any sudden reversal at the national level. Of course, knowing what's happened in places like South Africa and the UK, I'm still not exactly sure when and where this descent might taper off. Again, both of these places experienced apparent plateaus after initial declines, with the UK's stalled progress arriving just about one week after the peak, and South Africa's decline slowing around four weeks after their peak. Notably, both countries have reported improvements so far this week, although they have yet to return to the levels reported prior to the surge. Well, we're three weeks in, and so far, so good. As I mentioned, almost every state in the country has contributed to these declines, although a couple of places like Mississippi might be seeing some lingering activity. Honestly, at this point, it's difficult to know is this a reporting artifact or is it actually representative of what's going on in that state. Fortunately, it's not just cases either hospitalizations have dropped from their peak of 158,000 on January 20th to just over 100,000 as of this past Tuesday, taking us below the levels reached during the height of the Delta surge last September. Even in the time since last week's episode, when there were 126,000 Americans hospitalized, we've clearly seen the situation improve. Notably, 100,000 hospitalized this Tuesday. A week ago, 126,000 hospitalized. The same thing goes for patients in the ICU. Although the number hasn't dropped nearly as quickly as overall hospitalizations, it's certainly falling. At the time of last week's episode, there were nearly 23,000 patients being treated in an ICU. As of this past Sunday, the total was approaching 19,000, or a reduction of 4,000 patients in one week. Again, that's progress. However, recent data from the New York Times helps put this into perspective, finding that nearly one in four U.S. hospitals with intensive care units have at least 95% of their beds filled. So while it's easy to get caught up in this idea that we're officially through the surge, there still are many places in this country where you probably don't want to have a heart attack or be involved in a car accident right now. Even in other parts of the country, this improvement could mean that an eight-hour wait in an ER is now three hours. Again, I don't say this to discount the progress, but I'm not sure many people fully understand the position that our healthcare system is in. I know I sound like a broken record when it comes to this, but remember that more than 400,000 healthcare workers across the country have left their job since the start of the pandemic. Last month, there were 18 states that reported critical staffing shortages in their hospitals. For many of the current workers, any discussion about improvement likely doesn't mean all that much. So when I read an op-ed or a commentary about how the country just needs to move on from COVID, I wonder if they're aware that for many people in this country, that's not an option, at least right now. Finally, it's puzzling to think that in the backdrop of these conversations about simply moving on, there are still an average of 2,600 Americans dying from COVID each and every day. As many of you know, on Friday, the U.S. death toll from the pandemic hit 900,000. There are only 15 cities in the entire country with populations above that number. In fact, cities like San Francisco, Denver, Washington, D.C., and Boston all have populations below 900,000. So let me just conclude by saying we are making progress. That progress will continue. Remembering that hospitalization and deaths are lagging indicators We won't see these numbers come down precipitously for at least a few more weeks. But it's not too early to start planning for that. But please don't assume that today everything's all done. It's not. We still have many healthcare facilities in this country that are still really stretched.
0: We spoke last week about the BA2 Omicron subvariant. Have we learned anything new about it over the past week? And do we have any data yet on BA2 in the U.S.?
1: Well, Chris, let me just uh, spend a moment reminding our listeners about what we're talking about when we talk about BA one or BA two. When the Omicron variant emerged, it was originally characterized as a BA one sublineage virus, meaning that that was the dominant uh, virus that we saw in our communities. But shortly thereafter, we saw the sublineage BA two and BA three, both distinctly different from BA one. In fact, just to remind you of that, as I've talked about before, the difference between the ancestral strain of the virus from Wuhan and the alpha variant is actually less from a mutation standpoint than the difference between BA1 and BA2. So while we're calling them Omicron subvariants, they are different. As of February 8th, BA2 has now been detected in at least 67 countries and 42 US states. It's estimated to be responsible for approximately 2% of the cases globally with BA1, the original Omicron strain still responsible for the majority of cases worldwide. But it seems to be quickly picking up steam. But in short, what can we say about BA2 and its impact on cases in the future? Well, let me just say it's complicated, and the picture right now is murky. For example, studies out of both Denmark and the UK that looked at household transmission found that BA2 is likely about 30% more infectious than BA1. BA2 does not appear to cause more serious disease than BA1, and at least right now, there doesn't appear to be a difference in vaccine effectiveness between BA1 and BA2. Though BA2 seems to be more transmissible than BA1, that does not necessarily mean it'll cause the same dramatic rise in cases that we saw in December and January when the Omicron variant first appeared. In both countries where BA1 was dominant and in countries where BA2 was dominant at the time of the peak in Omicron cases, there has been rapid reductions in cases following those peaks, which makes it difficult to assess what impact BA2 may have had when it became the dominant strain in different areas. Let's take a look at what we've seen happen in countries around the world to illustrate how complicated this is. Keep it in mind that there are a lot of factors that we don't really fully understand yet about the transmission dynamics and what may or may not be causing a rise or fall in case numbers by subvariant type. Take India. India is an example where BA2 was dominant at the time of the Omicron peak. Omicron became the dominant variant in India in late December. And by early January, BA2 accounted for the majority of India's Omicron cases. In the nine days following their peak, they saw a much more rapid decline in cases compared to Denmark, with their cases falling 17%. As of January 31st, BA2 made up 98% of cases and has seen a 48% decline in cases just in the past week. One looks at Nepal, the Philippines, and Qatar. BA2 was likely dominant in all three of those countries at the time of their peaks in late January, and all experienced a rapid decline in cases ranging from 35% in Qatar and 56% in Nepal, nine days out from their peak. Take Sweden. BA2 became the dominant subvariant in Sweden at the time of their peak Omicron cases on January 28th, and by February 5th, they had experienced a 25% decrease in new cases. Let's take a look at Denmark. As a reminder, last week we looked in detail at Denmark, which, on the other hand, is an example where BA1 was dominant at the time of the Omicron peak in the country. The Omicron variant became dominant in Denmark in the week of ending on December 25th, then making up 76% of the cases. At the time, BA1 was far more prevalent than BA2, accounting for 88% of the country's Omicron cases. One week later, over 90% of the country's cases were Omicron, and two weeks after that, BA2 surpassed BA1 as the dominant sublineage, accounting for 54% of the country's Omicron cases. As of January 31st, BA2 is responsible for 82% of all cases. Now, Denmark's cases peaked on January 29th with a seven-day average of nearly 46,000, and nine days later, the seven-day average was about 42,000, an 8% decrease. Denmark currently has 1,315 people hospitalized with 39 in the ICU and 59 of those in ICU patients on ventilators and 28 new deaths reported on Monday and Tuesday. So in this situation with Denmark, we see a different pattern that we've seen in other countries who also saw this dominant BA2 subvariant. Let's take a look at South Africa. BA1 was dominant in South Africa when Omicron peaked in the country, and initially, cases fell dramatically after South Africa reached their peak on December 18th, falling 38% in just nine days. Now, BA2 is dominant, making up approximately two-thirds of the cases as of January 24th. Since then, cases have remained fairly stable, around 50 new cases per million population per day, approximately 10 times higher than the previous low, of four cases per million that was seen in November of 2021. This long tail may not be entirely due to the BA2 sublineage, as it is not unlike what we have seen in many other countries with Delta. But BA2 could certainly be playing a role in this. A couple of last countries to note in Norway, where BA1 was dominant at the time of their peak Omicron cases on January twenty-seventh, cases have declined by only seven percent nine days after the peak. BA2 has not yet become dominant in Norway, but is increasing and as of January 25th made up one-fifth of the cases. In Ireland, after reaching a peak on January 9th of over 4,700 cases per day per million population, cases dropped dramatically by 43% over nine days. Then they hit a low of about 680 cases per million per day and have since experienced a 14% increase in daily cases over the last week. As of January 24th, BA2 cases were rising, but still made up less than 10% of cases. Time will tell what happens here. Finally, the United States. Here in the U.S., BA1 was dominant when the Omicron wave peaked on January 16th with 2,410 cases per million population. Nine days later, the case count has decreased by 17% to 1,990 cases per million per day. In the past week, the U.S. has seen a 40% decrease in cases. As of February 5th, BA2 still only made up about 3.6% of cases, but has been growing steadily. So what does all this mean in terms of cases that relate to BA2? Well, honestly, it's really hard to tell you right now whether trends in cases are a result of the presence of the BA2 sublinage or are they just the result of the Omicron variant in general, or which other factors are at work. What we've seen in other countries, we can suspect that as BA2 becomes more prevalent, there will be a slower decline in cases. It's also likely that BA2 sub lineages will cause the Omicron peak to be higher in places that have not yet peaked and have a slower drop and extended longer. Many questions remain regarding BA2, including what kind of protection previous infection with BA1 will provide against future infections with BA2. In short, this is still a stay tuned moment. But in general, what we're seeing is this very major drop in cases following that initial peak. And what we're really looking at carefully with BA1 and BA2 sublineages, how will that tail look? Will it drop further? Will it be stable? Will it slightly go up? And what will that mean for hospitalizations and deaths? I again reiterate what I've said already. I do believe that as case numbers come down from these peaks, Within one to three weeks, we will also see the number of hospitalizations and deaths across the country, and for that matter around the world, continue to decrease.
0: So as I mentioned in the introduction, there is a growing sense of optimism with the rapid decline in cases here in the United States. Four states this week announced timelines for the end of school mask mandates, while others have dropped indoor mask mandates. A number of public health talking heads, as you like to call them, are saying that we need to start loosening restrictions, whatever restrictions are left, to show the public that there is an off-ramp. Others say it's too soon. I think for many of our listeners, having that conversation while more than 2,500 COVID-19 deaths are being reported every day seems premature. But Mike, is it time to start having this conversation? And what should the message be, whether it's from the White House, the CDC, or state health officials?
1: Well, Chris, as I just pointed out in describing what was happening with these surges, peaks and cases and decrease, we still have some uncertainty about what the immediate future will look like. Will we see some ongoing tale of activity that still causes uh, substantial illness in our communities? Or will we see drops in cases that will result in levels of infection similar to what we might see in an average flu year? I think this is still yet to be determined. My sense is that we will see a continued drop in cases for some time. But to really focus on this discussion, and it is a critical discussion, we really have to acknowledge that we have two pandemics happening simultaneously with COVID. The one is, in fact, surely that of the disease caused by the virus. The other is a loss in trust in public health. I see it growing daily. This is dangerous. We have got to address both of these situations simultaneously. First of all, we have to realize that we've been in this pandemic for two years. And with any other kind of emergency event, fatigue sets in. Patients are lost credibility is challenged. That's normal in all of human discourse where you have something lasting this long. So in fact, think if this pandemic can only been six months in length and we were in and out, we would have very different perceptions of what public health did or how they did it. So one of the issues is acknowledging time by itself is a factor in how people view what's happening. We do have to acknowledge another factor is we've had challenges with messaging. One is we have never really shared with the public a primer on how do you talk science? What does it mean? How do you understand it? How do you anticipate it? You know, this is not the classic kind of equation, equal MC squared kind of physics. This is an evolving science. This is one where, in fact, We have individuals who will make public statements about something on a given day, and that does reflect the science as we know it that day. Three months later, we have new data. This is evolving science. Things may change. I have tried very hard with you, our podcast audience, to be certain that I express the humility that we must have when dealing with these data, when understanding evolving science. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This is what we're going to learn over the days ahead so that we will know. And I think our lack of clarity on that has really been a challenge because it's left people with, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Look what they said then. Now look what they say now. And I think this has been a challenge. The final piece is we've had lots of talking heads. I contribute to that. I'm one of them. Guilty as charged. But I have seen over and over again talking heads who have made all kinds of pronouncements and predictions for which none of them or very few have ever been realized. Just this past week, one of those talking heads was confronted in an NBC interview, all the different predictions she had made that were wrong, not even close. And how then could she predict the future without some credibility and a track record? We've not held many of the talking heads accountable for what they've said, how they've said it. And I think we should. It's not to lay blame or to give credit. It's just you want a reliability factor. You kind of want a Consumer Reports edition of public messaging. You know, who is giving you the information? And so today, it's not unusual to see different people talking at each other, over each other, and the public left to decide wait a minute, what's the truth? That's a challenge. And commu- We do not speak with a single voice in public health. And I'm not saying that you make people say what you want them to say, but what is consensus? How do we come to that? What do we know? What do we not know? That would clearly make things better. So this is an example right here with masking. This is a perfect example. One of the challenges we've had is how do you nuance this message when you're still trying to learn? For example, I have been accused of being anti-masking and with all the sundry associated characteristics that go with that, I've been assumed as someone who believes that masking should be all the time everywhere for everyone. And without any discussion, what the hell do we mean by masking? We keep throwing that term out like good or bad or up or down or in or out. We never define it. In April of 2020, we put out a piece, I was part of it, talking about the need for quality masking, the need to have protective masking. Well, let's just take a look at what we're talking about today when we talk about mask mandates. It matters a great deal which kind of respiratory protection you're using. And I still maintain that largely cloth face coverings are nothing more than some type of decorative device. They pose very little protection. Now, people cite studies, in fact, a recent one from CDC suggesting that, in fact, cloth face coverings are much more effective. I will tell you across the board, we have looked at these studies. There's a commentary on our website about this. Many of these studies were so poorly designed that if one of our graduate students were to have conducted that study, I would have flunked them. And we don't talk about quality of data. Whoever has a preprint out on some element of something, the media picks it up and it's the gospel truth. You know, just last week, several economists from Johns Hopkins put out a a study showing that lockdowns provided no real public health benefit. The media ran with that one, something fierce without it all, Adding the fact that there have been over 15 studies showing that they do provide some reduction in transmission. Again, you know, dueling banjos of science. So when we take a look at masking, we have to understand you can't just talk about masking. We also have to understand what it's come to symbolize. Masking has taken on political dimensions beyond anything I could have imagined. It is absolutely a divisive issue. And so if you're gonna try to bring about a policy from a public health perspective of something to reduce the risk of transmission of the virus, if the public won't comply, what good is it? It's like that old piece I keep saying to you about a vaccine is nothing till it turns into a vaccination. A recommendation is nothing until it turns into action that actually reduces transmission. So we have to understand that. And let me just give you a, a very clear, I think, and, and real example of what I'm talking about. We now have this masking debate up, masking mandates. What a bad term. What a bad thing in terms of trying to understand the real issues at this. I have maintained, as you know, for some time that I don't think masking in of itself is effective in younger children. Because we don't have effective respiratory protection for younger children. N95s don't fit. KN95s for younger kids are very hard to keep on, and a face cloth covering is just not that protective. Well, on Tuesday, David Leonhardt in the New York Times wrote a piece on the mask debate. And I was quoted in this piece. And what I actually said is in the context, and I'll read you the full paragraph that. Uh, David used. He said, the benefits of universal masking in schools remain unclear. Studies in Florida and England, for example, tend to find little effect in caseloads. One study that did find an effect has been largely debunked. Some experts still favor masks in schools, saying they're likely to have an effect. Even a few studies have yet shown it. A lot of other evidence suggests masking matters. Until the Omicron wave ends and both hospitalizations and deaths fall, much further, masks should stay on, these experts say. So now imagine you're the public. Where are you at right on this one? What are they talking about? But David goes on to say, other experts believe that universal mask mandates are almost worthless. Among the reasons medical masks are designed for adults, not children, Michael Ostrom, a University of Minnesota epidemiologist, notes, even masks designed for children slip off their faces. Children take off their masks to eat. And in Omicron's intense contagiousness and the benefits of the current mandates may be tiny. A universal mandate doesn't work, Ostrom told me. Mandates focused on older children and high quality masking can help when caseloads are rising rapidly, he added. It's also relevant that teachers and students who want to continue wearing masks can do so. One-way masking with medical masks provides protections, experts note. Now, just those words that I've said yesterday has created a firestorm in response to me and people who are thinking I've sold out, that I'm not protecting our kids, that I'm not trying to put forward that positive proactive public health message. Well, let me come back to this. No one, I hope, can ever say, if you read what I've written, you look at what I've said, can think that I'm against respiratory protection. I have advocated strongly for it, dating way back in April of 2020, when we first came forward saying aerosols were a critical part of the transmission model for SARS-CoV-2 transmission. But you got to wear adequate protection. You know, just putting something in front of your face doesn't do that. And for younger kids, this is a huge challenge, a huge challenge. It's a challenge for older kids and adults if they won't do it and wear a highly protective device. If the face cloth covers all they'll wear, I promise you they will likely get infected over time, particularly in an Omicron kind of world. So the nuance in here is I'm not against masking that term which I dislike, I'm for quality masking and I'm acknowledging the difficulty of getting young children to be protected from some kind of respiratory protection device use. And I'm also one of these realists that says, you know, you can't assume if you take 30 minutes for lunch and you take your respiratory protection device off your face, that doesn't count. Lunch time doesn't get a timeout with virus transmission. And yet I hear this all the time. Well, you know, they wore it all day while they were at lunch for a half an hour. With Omicron, that's more than enough. So why are we mandating that? We are losing the public's faith in us if we don't tie real outcomes to real actions, and this is an example. So I would say my ideal would be for older kids that can wear N95 and KN95s, and by older, I may even be seven, eight, nine-year-olds, can wear them, then go ahead and put that in place. But then enforce that. Don't let anything that comes across your face count. Somebody wears a gator to school, that's not protection. You're going to mandate that, oh, they must wear something so they'll wear that? We're inconsistent. We are absolutely inconsistent in our efforts. So let me tell you where I think this is getting us, by not acknowledging this issue and not acknowledging that we're going to be seeing case numbers drop precipitously. In another article that was in the New York Times yesterday, written by Nate Cohen, entitled Americans are frustrated with the pandemic. These polls show how much. I urge all of you, if you can, to go back and read it. I think this content is open to the public if you're not a subscriber to the New York Times as it relates back to COVID. But in this, Nate lays out very clearly in this piece the challenge we have. Let me just share with you his opening paragraphs. A wave of polls taken as the Omicron variant crested across much of the United States shows new signs that the public's resolve to combat the coronavirus pandemic is waning. The surveys depict an increasingly frustrated and pessimistic nation that is as worried by the specter of an endless pandemic as it is fearful of the disease. While a majority of voters remain concerned about the coronavirus, the balance of recent polling suggests that the desire to return to normalcy has approached or even overtaken alarm about the virus itself. A recent Yahoo News YouGov survey found that 46% of respondents thought Americans should learn to live with the pandemic and get back to normal, while just 43% thought we need to do more to vaccinate, wear a mask, and test. Now, I could go through and highlight all of the findings from these different surveys, whether they be from the Kaiser Family Foundation, from Mammoth University, but the bottom line message is, we as a public health community are increasingly disconnecting from the public that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be. We should never make public health policy based on what's popular, but we should always acknowledge our public health policy has to live in a world where without the trust and the support of the public, our recommendations will ring hollow. Look what we've seen with mandated issues. Largely, particularly for masks, they've not been enforced. I could go through a laundry list of mandates that have fallen flat on their face. Now i support mandates, I always have. I spent my entire career trying to get young children vaccinated in our schools with vaccine related mandates to protect their other students and family members. We have to understand we are living in a very different time than we were two years ago. So where am I at in mask mandates? I think for most instances, they're not doing much. I wish they were, but unless you're wearing high quality respiratory protection that is routinely enforced, that we've instructed the public how to do, no more of this 25% of the population wearing under your nose, if we're not doing that, then we are not probably gaining much at all from a mandate and we are causing ourselves lots of credibility challenges. So I hope that gives you a sense where I'm at on this. I would talk about this in all aspects of public health. It's about common sense. It's really about using the power of science, finding that message, telling people what you know, what you don't know, and also understanding where people are at. Because if we don't bring them along with us, we will not be successful in any program that we do to address covid
0: So, Mike, when you talk about nuanced, does that mean going forward, acknowledging that cases are declining, that things are getting better, but that the pandemic is not over yet and that we have to be aware that uh, another variant could come along and cases could rise again?
1: You know, Chris, that's exactly the point. I don't know that another variant is not going to show up. And do even more damage than Omicron did. In terms of its infectiousness, immune evasion, that's a real possibility. You know, I'm sitting here right now. It was one year ago this week that I put out a statement that said the darkest days of the pandemic could still be ahead of us. A statement that was not at all popular. Nobody gave it credibility. But I was looking at these variants and anybody who's been a regular listener to this podcast knows for the last year, that fifth dimension song, you know, this is the dawn of the age of Aquarius is playing in my head every day. This is the dawn of the age of the variants. I've been saying that for a year. I don't know that that's not going to happen again. I hope not. But as you've heard me say many times, hope is not a strategy. So we have to be prepared for another one. So how do we get prepared? We have credibility from at least what we've done already. And you know what? High quality masking with good respiratory protection could be a very important element of a new emerging variant down the road. Well, if we have burned all of our goodwill and our credibility by insisting that you have to do it this way, you know, you have to stay masked until a certain point, without providing the quality masking that makes a difference to begin with, you know, what have we accomplished? Yeah, we were right. We got people to do what we wanted to do, but did we really save lives? So I think we have to come back to this issue of, I do believe case numbers will come down precipitously, even with the discussion of BA1 and BA2 and the lack of clarity, how far they'll come down. We are probably going to be in a time in the next few weeks. Now, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. But we will be in time at a place where we can say to ourselves, you know, we can do a lot more of what we used to do. Now, I just have to put one caveat in. This literally breaks my heart each week to talk about this. For those who are immune compromised, I don't know when your life will ever get back to what it was before Omicron. I think about you all the time. And what it must be like to have to live even with your four doses of vaccine on board and counting on your personal respiratory protection to protect you. But we will get there. What we have to do now is help people understand how we got there in a scientifically sound, consistent manner and then move from that. And, you know, I've had so many reporters ask me in the last three days, oh, boy, these governors are moving, you know, are they right to do this? It seems like it's far too early, et cetera. You know, governors are probably as good as anybody in the world at reading the tea leaves. They see where the public's at, they know it. These are some democratic governors who have been very supportive of public health, but they're reading the tea leaves. So I would say if this were one that was an absolute uh, protection kind of situation, where if you did it, everybody was protected. If you didn't, nobody was protected. You know which way I'd go on it. Absolutely, I'd come down on protection but there's so much ambiguity in the masking issue right now, don't die on this bridge. This is not where the war will be won or lost. It's about getting people vaccinated. It's about continuing to work on that issue of getting testing and drug uh, treatments readily available to people, as well as coming up with better quality masking. Somebody should win the Nobel Prize for finding a highly effective respiratory protection device like an N95, but for kids that they'll wear, that they find comfortable, that they find protective. If you get, somebody does that, I want them to get the Nobel Prize because it'll save a lot of lives. But until we get that way, we have to understand the limitations of what we say when we tell people they must wear a mask.
0: This brings us to our COVID query segment. This week, we have a question about vaccination for children under five from Abby. But before we get to this question, let's start with a little background. Last week, Pfizer and BioNTech submitted an emergency use application to the FDA for approval of their vaccine in children ages six months to four years. The application was based on the initial two-dose trial results, which found that the vaccine was safe but did not produce a strong enough immune response in all groups within that cohort. So The hope is that the vaccine will be authorized and kids can begin getting shots while the companies await the data on a third dose of the vaccine, which is expected or hoped to to provide more protection. So with that in mind, here is Abby's question. I'm feeling very conflicted about the potential approval of Pfizer vaccine for my three-year-old. On the one hand, I'm certainly anxious to get him protected as soon as possible. He's the last of my four kids to be eligible. On the other, giving him two doses of something that has not yet proven to be effective feels like taking out all the risk without any potential benefit. My understanding is that the under five Moderna trial will be wrapping up in the next month or two, and that they chose a significantly higher dose than Pfizer did. My inclination is to wait for their data as well as the final Pfizer data. If it were your kids, or perhaps your grandkids, which way would you lean? Get going sooner rather than later in the hopes that you have a jumpstart on the full series? or wait out the data.
1: Well, Chris, this is really, again, all about nuance. It's exactly what we just talked about. Uh, Let's break this into the different buckets, I think, that are really important. One is, let's just talk about the vaccines. Abby has correctly pointed out that in fact, there is a real question right now about how well the vaccines work or have worked in those under age five relative to the trials that were done. And in fact, it was found that the two dose approaches for both of the vaccines did not provide adequate protection among those under age five. And therefore the companies were sent back to look at a third dose possibility. Now in the process of this, of course, particularly as a result of the Omicron surge, which is gonna be over with, not too distant future, the FDA decided, well, let's get the information in on the two dose and really look at it. They requested the companies to submit that data, not the other way around. And their logic is, well, if we have sufficient safety data here and we see that those initial doses actually start the process of developing a chain of immunity boosters, then let's go ahead and get it started. Think about where we're at with adults. Started out with two doses, eventually got to three. Well, you couldn't even look at three until you had the first two in. So you had to get them done. So their point is, is that we likely can based on safety data we have and on what immunogenicity data, data about how well the vaccines induce an immune response, get this initial approval with the idea that when the third dose data are available, it's kind of a handoff, one to two. Now that's never happened before in all of our vaccine science review and process to have a vaccine kind of come in as an interim to try to get you ready for the one that's still coming. And I understand the logic of that. I think that some people at the FDA should be credited with thinking through that. You know, I surely stand guilty as charged because I was one of those people out there saying last August, the idea of a booster, that third dose, which of course, you know, I always want to call a three prime dose vaccine was in fact needed well before the final definitive data were available and urged strongly that we get third doses into people, which today is not even a, uh, you know, anyone should have a counter argument to uh, why we want third doses. But the data were incomplete at the time. But in fact, in the time of a crisis, a pandemic, you have to make decisions sometimes that are not normal regulatory science decisions. So I very much understand where FDA is at. My concern, and and I wish I could define it in a way that would give you an absolute number, you know, five for four and three against, or you know, eight four and two against, in terms of understanding what the FDA should do. But my concern is that today parents will look at this as a shortcut. We already have a problem in five to eleven year olds, where only thirty one percent of the kids who could be vaccinated are vaccinated. Now, how many do you think of those five and 11-year-olds made that decision on their own? No, it was their parents, their guardians, whoever in their family, okay? Well, now imagine there will be those who will absolutely want their under five-year-old child to be vaccinated, and they will be the first to sign up. They'll be at that door waiting for that office to open so they can get their vaccine a half an hour before anybody gets there. Thank you to those parents but there's gonna be a large contingency of parents gonna say, I'm gonna wait. You know, the case numbers are coming down, doesn't look to be the big problem. The schools that had the major outbreaks in January are not seeing them now. Uh, The daycares are not seeing major outbreaks. I'm gonna wait. And that by itself, you can argue is logical. But what this really comes down to is, what does this mean for parents and their faith in the US vaccine regulatory science process? And does this now make them begin to wonder about other vaccines? Well, wait a minute, if they took a shortcut here, and I think it's a shortcut, what do they do in other vaccines? So I think this comes back to the point I made earlier, we have two different kinds of pandemics going on. We have one of the actual virus, and we have one with a loss of trust in public health. And this could be one of them for childhood vaccines. And I wish I had the best answer. I don't have the right answer. I am not here as an armchair quarterback or on the bully pulpit to say, do it my way or the highway. I don't know what the right answer is. I see the logic in the FDA approach with these vaccines. They will surely go through full review at the FDA, with the outside advisory committee, they'll go to the ACIP, but I also worry about the message it sends. This is an incomplete vaccine in the terms of it wasn't capable of being approved on its own before without the idea that the third dose may be coming. And how will the public respond to that? I don't know. So if I were you, Abby, just because I do believe that there would be benefit in the two doses... And as someone who has a grandchild in this age category who can't wait for them to get vaccinated, I would go with the two doses right now with the idea that it's priming the immune pump of the child. And if we need that third dose, then they're ready for it. Um, but I also have faith that the safety data will be completely and exhaustively uh, reviewed and that I don't have a challenge with that and that I do have reason to believe that the immune response. That they get from these two doses will still be very meaningful in potentially reducing severe disease, uh, you know, hospitalization if that should occur. But I surely understand your concern. I acknowledge that. I think you're right. And I wish I had the right answer. I don't know.
0: And just a follow-up note for Abby and our listeners, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices will be reviewing that data I believe on February 15th. So, Mike, uh, where is our latest beautiful place submission from this week?
1: Well, Chris, I'm very happy to report that we have a submission from Diane. And uh, this is one that is in our neck of the country, as you might say. And it's an area of our state that I love so very, very much, Uh, a very beautiful uh, part of the world. So, Diane wrote I'm a family physician in northern Minnesota. Last week, my partner covered the practice so I could go to the Atasca State Park for a much-needed three-day silent retreat. I shared air with no one. Skiing, unmasked, through the woods was balm for my soul. The headwaters of the Mississippi have always been one of my beautiful places. There is nothing about being in the presence of this mighty river's quiet beginnings that gives me hope and strength. My visit Wednesday was magical. Temperature was minus four degrees Fahrenheit, And the sun was out. The river's music filled the air and the stones were blooming with ice. The pictures and short videos speak for themselves. Thank you Sidrap team for all you do. We often quote Dr. Ostrom when talking with our patients and steer people to the podcast for reliable information. Keep up the good work and we will too. We are in this together. Diane. Two things. First of all, thank you very much for your uh, beautiful place submission. It is beautiful. I love the headwaters of the Mississippi. Anybody who has seen me on any kind of zoomed, whatever, see a picture of me uh, with my dog, Max, uh, behind me. And uh, one of the most meaningful pictures I have is the one that we share sitting at the headwaters of the Mississippi River on those very rocks that you just talked about. Let me also say, Diane, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do for all of us as a practicing physician in a time of covid You are one of those individuals on the front lines day in and day out. This has been, I know, an incredibly challenging time. And so thank you for what you do. You are truly a hero in all of this uh, COVID pandemic, something that doesn't get said nearly enough. And so I thank you for all you've done. And I love your beautiful place.
0: So, Mike, what are your take home messages and closing thoughts for today?
1: Well, Chris, uh, let me just start out by saying that uh, if you were to describe my brain right now as somewhere between a black hole and a hurricane wind, uh, it would be right. You're somewhere in there, okay? Uh, I I just have to acknowledge that to our listeners in the sense that they um, realize that these are very difficult times to combine science, wisdom, compassion, and that unknown that is so important leading people to a better place in life. But let me tell you, I really have three main summary points for today's podcast. Number one, we are entering a new phase of this pandemic. Will it, in fact, be a repeat of the storm category for five hurricane? Or will it be the last days of a blizzard where we can all count on digging out and maybe never see this blizzard again, at least for years? I don't know. I worry that we might be in the eye right now of the hurricane that makes us feel like everything's okay. We've made it. I hope that is the case. And I hope the back wall of that hurricane totally dissipates before the eye completely crosses where I'm at, but I don't think that's the case. So we need to be prepared for what can come ahead. And I know people are fatigued. They don't want to hear this. And it doesn't mean that you need to change your life to repair. What it means, we in public health have to do a better job of understanding how to get people vaccinated. We need to do a better job of getting testing in place so that people can readily, during a surge in cases, get tested quickly. And then using those very rapidly available results to get people to drug therapies that can make all the difference in the world between having a serious life-threatening infection and a much milder one. There are a lot of things we can do and must do, and we've got to learn a lot more about how to communicate with the public. We need to understand from the public how we've missed the mark in many of our messages and what we can do a better job of. So I don't know. Are we in the eye of the hurricane? Or are we at the end of the blizzard? Either one, I do know we're going to have some good days ahead. What I don't know is how long they will last and how good they'll be. And point two, this week's controversy du jour is mask mandates. You know, don't allow ourselves to make great the enemy of good. You know, if you're going to use high-quality masking to protect yourself, consistent masking, that term, then you've got me on your side. I'll do whatever I can to help that happen. But if you're using inadequate respiratory protection, gaiters face cloth coverings etc you know are we going to literally you know take that issue on for a mandate when the data are so soft if those who are against the mandates were to use data like that we'd scream it's not scientifically sound data so i think we're at that point right now where in fact we have to ask ourselves what's the right way to go to protect the most number of people common sense We have to understand that mask now is a very troublesome four-letter word for us because we've made mask that. We have a lot more work to do. I can't wait until, as I said earlier, somebody invents the Nobel Prize deserving uh, invention of a really effective respiratory protection covering that is easy to wear. that can be rewashed. It can be used over and over again and kids will wear it. Wouldn't that be something? And finally, number three, as we hit this upcoming low, which I believe we will, we must not stop our efforts to be prepared for this potential future of a new variant. As I said just a moment ago, I don't know if it'll happen or not, but we have to be prepared. And this is the point I just made about vaccines, drugs, testing. All those things need to continue. We need to move on. We need to find better vaccines. Not that the ones we have right now are not good. They're really remarkable. But what if we could find one that has more durable immunity, that has a wider breadth of protection against even variants yet to have evolved? So we need to keep working in all of this. As I learned a long time ago in rural Iowa, you make hay while the sun shines. And I think the days ahead are going to give us that opportunity. And finally, we have to, as a public health community, learn how to communicate with the entire population. And how do we help our elected officials lead in a way that we're all on the same page. We're all attempting to save lives without causing these great challenges and personal values. Maybe that's naive, but I think we have to do a much better job of understanding how can we actually ratchet down the rhetoric and ratchet up the science. So I think those are all very important aspects of what we've hopefully learned today.
0: And any closing songs for us?
1: Well, Chris, today we actually have a gift uh, from one of our listeners who uh, thought that this song might very well be uh, one quite appropriate for the time, and uh, I thought it was a a quite thoughtful piece. He suggested uh, Better Days by One Republic. Uh, Better Days is a song by the One Republic band taken from their fifth studio album, *Human*. It was released as the fourth single from the album on March 25th, 2020. It was co-written by frontman Ryan Teeter, along with bassist Brent Kutzel, John Nathaniel, and Tyler Spry. The song was actually inspired by the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic upending the lives across the globe, according to frontman Ryan Teeter, who said, we were in the final weeks of our fifth album deadline when a global pandemic was declared by the WHO. A few of us unknowingly got exposed to somebody with COVID-19 in London and ended up in quarantine in LA at my studio for two weeks. With only two songs left to finish, one of them happened to be better days. We write about real experiences and events that happened to us. This is what happens when you write a song during a crisis. The song actually did well. It, uh, on the US digital song sales by Billboard, it got as high as number 11. So I share with you today Better Days by One Republic. Oh, I know that there'll be better days. Oh, that sunshine about to come my way. May we never ever shed another tear for today. Because, oh, I know there'll be better days. Waking up in California, but these clouds, they won't go away. Every day is like another storm. Yeah, I'm just trying not to go insane. Yeah, and the city's shining so bright, so many dark nights. So many dark days. But every time I feel the paranoia, I close my eyes and I pray. Oh, I know that there'll be better days. Oh, that sunshine bout to come my way. May we never, ever shed another tear for today. Because, oh, I know there'll be better days. One Republic. So thank you very much uh, for uh, recommending that song. It is very fitting. Uh, I want to thank all of you today for being with us. I know it was a probably not that satisfactory of a podcast in that I didn't give you a lot of answers that I wish I could have and should have, but I gave you my best shot at what I know. I know we're in both a very good time, and yet we have the potential yet for some more challenging times. Mark my word, the next week will be uh, a whole series of uh, heated discussions about mask mandates, and sometimes i I worry that we get caught up arguing about how many angels can dance in the head of a pin without actually asking ourselves, what are we accomplishing? How are we? I want to acknowledge all of you on the podcast who have lost loved ones, who have family members, friends, colleagues who have been so severely impacted by COVID, including those with long COVID. Um, this pandemic just continues to accumulate tragedy day after day after day. But I also want to thank all of you who have written in, shared with us your thoughts, your encouragement, uh, your beautiful moments. Um, Really, you have been so kind. And as I do every week, just reminding you that how your kindness, one act of kindness a week, can start an entire chain of kindness that can last forever. So I hope we all continue to remember that and do that. Thank you for your time today. We appreciate it, Chris. Thank you to you and the team. For all your efforts to put this podcast together. Just be safe, be kind, and thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Ostrom Update. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review. And be sure to keep up with the latest COVID-19 news by visiting our website, sidrap.umn.edu. This podcast is supported in part by you, our listeners. If you would like to donate, please go to sidrap.umn.edu forward slash donate dash now. The Ostrom Update is produced by Maya Peters, Corey Anderson, Angela Ulrich, Meredith R.P., and Sydney Redpenning.